And if you want to take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 1, uh, we're going to be there today. Now, all of us uh, celebrate the birth of a child, and rightfully so. I mean, even before there have been records, there's always been the announcing and the celebration of a birth of a child. And whether you're royalty or celebrity or you're just an everyday person, uh, there has always been a way to make an announcement of regarding a birth. Now, uh, about the 1850s or so, uh, in Great Britain, they actually started developing cards that you could actually send out uh, to people. And uh, with that, then that just kind of took on a life of its own with all these different announcements. I recall when Karina actually told me that we were expecting the first of our four children. And let me just kind of take you a little bit back in time. Uh, We're in Portland, Oregon. Uh, Karina is a supervisor for United Grocers, overseeing all the workers' comp claims. Uh, I, uh, with Karina being my academic advisor, I'm at Western Seminary, and uh, I'm going through at a kind of a record pace. I'm also teaching uh, guitar lessons uh, at three different locations in the city. And uh, we're running the high school youth group at Southwest Bible Church. And so we're stretched really thin time-wise, and there's a lot going on. But we also have, uh, we're living in a 360-square-foot little cabin, okay? Uh, Super small, not much to it. In fact, there it is. Uh, When we actually took the kids back once to go see it, they had tore it down, okay? It was in terrible shape, okay? And so... We were barely making it. We just had enough finances to, to get through each semester and just basically give the seminary all of our money, and we'd start over again. Now, uh, right after one of my two-hour classes, and that's generally how the classes are, uh, I got on the phone, because Karina was going to the doctor, and she told me, guess what? We are expecting. And I want you to know there was just such great joy and delight to, to think, like, wow, we're expecting a baby, but then also kind of like, oh, well, you know, I don't actually have a position when I finish here in about eight months at the seminary. And furthermore, uh, there's no way that we could bring a little baby into this house. And so we had some pretty big unknowns. But I want you to know that Ashley arrived and God was faithful. In fact, here's kind of a picture of what that looked like there. Just calling and just announcing and just celebrating the birth of our little baby girl. And I remember in the hospital when I was holding her in one hand that night, I was like, I have got to start being responsible, okay? It really kicked in. That was the moment. But you know, even though we had some unknowns, they pale in comparison to the man that we're going to meet today. A man, I'm sure you're familiar with his name, but you may not really fully understand his story. His name is Joseph. And when you look at the birth announcements regarding the Messiah, the Son of God, of Jesus, really interesting They are the absolutely most unique. And God gives a lot of attention to the birth announcements regarding his son. In fact, if you've looked at the gospel accounts, you'll notice that, wow, there is quite a bit of text that goes into the announcing of Jesus. And why is that? Why does God give so much attention to these birth announcements regarding Jesus Christ? And there are really two reasons why. And we're going to see them in our passage as we look at it in Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. The first reason that God gives so much attention to the birth announcement of Jesus is that it describes the glorious characteristics of the Messiah. So take a look, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, 
She was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Now, the Old Testament records a number of prophecies regarding this coming one, this child. This one, in fact, if you've noticed the genealogies right ahead of this, it starts out, this is going to be a son of Abraham, but also a son of David. He's going to be a son of David because he is going to be a a ruler, one who will reign forever as God promised and made a covenant with David. You will have a son who will be eternal and will reign forever. But he also is going to be the son of Abraham, uh, a one who would be a sacrifice for our sins. And so notice he's referred to the birth of Jesus, his human name, and Christ, his title. And that is the Greek word for anointed one. The Hebrew word for anointed one is Messiah. And in the Hebrew culture, they would anoint three different offices for people who had significant leadership in the nation of Israel. Uh, So if you were a prophet, a prophet is someone who represents God to the people, you were anointed with oil. But if you were a priest who represented the people to God, bringing their sacrifices, leading of the worship, and you had a unique role, you were anointed with oil. But if you were also a king, a king of Israel or king of Judah, you were anointed with oil. All of this signified that you were called out uniquely to fulfill this role. But when it comes to the promises of the Messiah, why all three roles, prophet, priest, king, are all uniquely tied into one individual. And there are hundreds of prophecies regarding this coming one. And so we see in verse 18, now the birth of Jesus Christ, meaning anointed one or Messiah, was as follow. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, look at this, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Mary's life was dramatically forever changed by this angelic announcement. When Gabriel tells her, and we saw this last week, and announces to her that you are going to be the one who is going to bear the child. You will be the one who will carry the Messiah. And she is in a situation where she is, notice what the text says, betrothed to Joseph. And you're like, What does that even mean, betrothed? So you probably think, maybe your Bible says engaged. And if you're thinking like kind of modern day engagement, well, there are some similarities. Betrothal is at a whole nother level. It's actually a legal contract. And it was taken very seriously in Judaism. So this is how you got married when you were a Hebrew in Israel. First of all, it would get started with this first stage, the Kedushin, where the families would actually bring together the couple. So if you've heard of like prearranged marriage, that's how it functioned. Now, we do have record, even in the Old Testament, of kids making their preference known to their parents. Like, you know, like Joseph, like, you know, I really like Mary, who's like way down the road. That's one I really like, okay? And you can do all that, but it's actually the parents that are going to bring this couple together. And so they would, and they would be rather young, like early teens, perhaps for the females, males, late, later teens, possibly maybe early 20s, but this, is, this takes place really young, okay? And so then after this, they were brought together and they were betrothed, there was a legal document that was signed. 
they were, had a prenuptial agreement that was made before witnesses where they were now considered husband and wife. In fact, they would even use those titles, but they wouldn't live together. In fact, the guy would be living with his parents, likely building either a house or an addition onto his dad's place. And the wife, she is going to be staying with her parents and she's going to be getting ready. And this betrothal period would last about a year. And the reason was, is that this proved the purity of the bride. So like if a, like if a bride would, should come up like pregnant during this betrothal period, that's going to be a huge problem, okay? And it's, it's going to end poorly, but it's going to end. But then after the one-year period, then what would happen is would be the wedding feast. And what would happen is the, the groom with his groomsmen, they would go from his father's house and they would go to the bride's house and they'd pick her up and her bridesmaids and the family and they'd all make their way back to the groom's house and they'd have this huge party and the wedding would take place. It was very festive. Mary and Joseph are betrothed. And there is only two reasons that you could, that you could actually break uh, a betrothal. Only two things you could do. One, it would require a divorce. Or if one of you died, obviously it ended. And so we, here we have this situation here where Mary, she's betrothed to Joseph. Before they came together, that is the Bible's way of saying they didn't have any sexual relationship. She was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Gabriel had announced this and said that the Holy Spirit is going to overshadow you and you are going to conceive a child. This is going to be a supernatural, biological process in which Mary, though she is a virgin, is actually going to conceive and a child is going to start growing in her womb. Just like we see at the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapter 1 where the Holy Spirit is hovering over the face of the earth and bringing about creation, So it is the Holy Spirit is going to overshadow and come over Mary, and she is going to conceive. And the virgin birth of Jesus is vital to the gospel because Jesus is actually the eternal Son of God. He knows no beginning. He is a member of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so he is unlike any other, hence he must have a birth unlike any other. And it says, like Jesus said in John 18, verse 37, it's not only that he was going to be born or born to a virgin, but that he has actually came into the world. It's the incarnation, the eternal son of God is going to come into the world. And because of the unique nature of the son of God, he is going to have to have a unique conception and birth. And Mary's virginity protects a lot more than her moral character and her reputation. It protected the nature of the divine Son of God. And so here she is in this situation. And notice verse 19. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. Do you see the scandal in it all? Mary is pregnant, but she's betrothed to Joseph. Now, we don't know a lot about Joseph. We see in Matthew chapter 13, he's referred to as a carpenter. 
He, as a carpenter, uh, this is a word that was either used for those who were involved in woodworking or like stonemasons, and likely both. And so he is a man who works with his hands. He's smart. He's intelligent. He can build things. He fixes things. He likely isn't like wealthy or rich, uh, but he's also, uh, we see that he is um, he's a, a man who lives in Nazareth with Mary, you know, not, not a super popular town, kind of nondescript, doesn't have a great reputation. And notice how he's de- described. He's described as a righteous man. This means that he is actually a true believer. He's not one of those that's just kind of going through the motions of cultural Judaism. He's not just kind of like, oh, say the right things, sing the right things, do the right things. No, he actually believes. He has a faith like Abraham. And with that genuine faith in God, you always find a parallel of wanting to walk in God's ways, right? You're one of God's children. You believe, and hence, you want to heed, obey. And so, he's a righteous man. That means he's trying to follow the law of God. And he does so because he loves God and he believes in God. He's not unrighteous. He's not immoral. He's not wicked. He's a man of integrity. In fact, his integrity and that righteousness that developed and is is associated with his name, I want you to know that was extremely important to him. Very important. But all of a sudden, he finds himself living his absolute worst nightmare. We don't know exactly how Mary told Joseph. Perhaps they were on the equivalent of what we would call like a New Testament date. Uh, Maybe they were out walking around you know, like if you've been engaged, you're talking about the future and, and what might be. I don't know what you do if you just kind of walk around the village. You look at goats. I don't know what you do on a New Testament date, but they're doing that, whatever they are. And, but this time, though, it's different. Like Joseph can tell that something is really wrong with Mary. And like most guys in that situation, you assume that I've done something, right? Uh, something is, man, I'm, did I say something? I mean, I washed my feet three times before he went on this date. I don't, is it me? I don't know. I, can't, I don't know what the problem is, but something is clearly wrong. Like, Mary, what's up? I mean, can't, what's going on? And Mary, I mean, she is absolutely terrified to have to tell Joseph this news. And finally, at some point, there is this conversation. And maybe in the midst of like Joseph saying, Mary, you got to tell me what's going on. I love you. I'm committed to you. There is nothing that's too great that we can't handle together. And she says it. Joseph, I'm pregnant. What? His life would just immediately unravel. All of a sudden, he would be sent into shock. What are you you saying? How, How could you? What are you talking about? I mean, what, we're, we're, we're like betrothed. We're planning our whole future together. You're a godly, lovely woman. There's, there's no way you're having some sexual relationship with some guy. What, is, this an all, is this a lie? What, what did you do? Who are you? Like a glass vase shattering on a rock floor. His life is absolutely broken. He's devastated. And finally, you know, after whatever he expresses, 
He's like, how? How did this happen? And Mary then makes this statement and says, this was God, his spirit. God is the one who's created this child within me. She basically says, it wasn't me. It was God. Of all the excuses that people come up with, with how they ended up pregnant, it was God, not me. No one had ever said that. By the way, that is a statement that is borderline blasphemy. Joseph is trying to take all this in, and he simply could not believe it. And neither could you. If you heard that statement, would you believe that? How many people uh, find themselves pregnant with the Spirit of God creates it, and you are not, you've never been in a relationship sexually? No one here would have believed such a statement. Joseph is an absolute, utter turmoil. I mean, he had been so looking forward to the day that they would come together, husband and wife. They've been planning their future. He's building onto a house or maybe building his own house. You can see all the plans for the future, the love, the commitment. He's like, man, Mary is just this awesome gal. I just really can't wait for us to be together as husbands and wife. And all of a sudden, he's got this wrenching, twisting. He's overcome with grief. Don't get the idea like, oh, okay, you know, what? okay, I guess that's what we're doing here. I want you to know he is devastated, convulsing, crying, sobbing, unknown, feeling like you're barely there, like a vapor. He's all would describe Joseph. Now, Joseph being shaken to the core, if this, was, if this took place like in Moses' day, why, uh, what would happen is Mary... And whoever that guy is are going to be brought to the city gate. She's going to be found guilty of adultery, as would this, this male. And they'd kill him. They'd stone him to death. It's actually prescribed in the law, Deuteronomy chapter 22, verses 23 and 24. But due to the lackness of the Jewish theocracy and the infiltration of Roman law, there were now some other options. And that's because the Romans said, listen... You can judge your matters and all that sort of stuff with your religion. However, we reserve the right to execute people. You won't be doing that. We'll do it, and we'll do it our way. And so that left Joseph actually two other possibilities. One, he could just publicly shame her. And what this would look like is that she would be charged with adultery. She would go before their leaders. They would find her guilty, and she would be shamed for the rest of her life. The whole idea of like Mary would then, you know, just get married to another guy or anything like that, pretty unlikely. She would be absolutely like an outcast. She would be forever ruined and reputation. But the other possibility was this. Because betrothal was a legal contract, Joseph could divorce her. It would require a writing of certificate. There would be a few witnesses. They'd try to do this as quietly as possible. And Joseph could send Mary away by divorcing her. Mary would bear that child, deliver that child, and raise that child 
someplace else. And Joseph had another reason to want to divorce her. His reputation was at stake. When this word got out, everybody's going to think, like, mm-hmm, Joseph, not so righteous after all, huh? A lot of show, a lot of talk, but you, you're morally compromised. You're living in moral rebellion against God. And so I want you to know that everybody thought that Joseph had gotten her pregnant. Unless he divorced her and said, I had nothing to do with it, and I want nothing to do with her. And so Joseph is wrestling with this. I mean, premarital pregnancy was so, so out, out of line with Mary's character. And he loved this gal, a quality gal. How could this be? What a story. Why is she saying this? This doesn't even make any sense. And he is wrestling this. What do you do? And I want you to know he, at the very deepest part of his being, felt like he was betrayed. Everybody would expect him, you just cut your losses, leave it to the law, and cut her loose and move on, or try to. When it comes to betrayal, I think all of us have experienced betrayal at, at some point, some more than others. Some of you, I, I, I mentioned this, and you're thinking, uh, I remember that. But some of you, when I talk about betrayal, this is perhaps one of the deepest issues in your life. For some, it might even be a defining issue in your life. And when you are betrayed deeply, it can bring out the most vindictive aspects of one's heart. You could hardly imagine they're even thinking and, and wanting to do such things. And, and Joseph is wrestling with what to do. But, you know, when someone has been betrayed or they're going through a deep trial and they're significantly hurt, give them space and grace. They are people after all. They're going to have all sorts of different emotions. They're going to be working through this, but see where they land. Look where they land. Where do they conclude and then start moving forward? This is how I'm going to live my life in light of the betrayal or the hurt or the pain. And for Joseph, man, this is an uncommon guy. Do you see that in verse 19? Not wanting to disgrace her. Wow. You see what he's doing? He's thinking and acting in Mary's best interest. Everyone would expect, you need to make a show of this. No, he's going to act in Mary's best interest. He doesn't want to disgrace her, even though he's devastated by her. And for Mary, think of Mary. Oh, my. I mean, she knows what has happened. She knows what is taking place. And she has no one to defend her. We're saying no one. And if you find yourself in a situation where you have no one to defend you, no one to stand up for you, no one to set the record straight, no one to take cover behind you know what happens? God becomes your advocate. And that's what happens for Mary. God becomes her advocate. So look at verse 20. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. 
Here is Joseph in the midst of his dream, his, his grief. He slips off to sleep. He begins to dream, but this isn't one of those fanciful dreams where some things make sense and others don't. This dream becomes reality. This is a vision. It's really interesting. Joseph's namesake, do you remember Joseph? Like Joseph back in Genesis? Remember? Guy who was made a slave by his brothers, goes to prison, becomes the number two guy in the Egyptian empire. Remember that guy? Do you remember God communicated to Joseph in dreams? And here we see that God communicates to this Joseph in dreams. And this will not be the first time. And notice what takes place. He had, what he had considered to do, he's going to send her away, divorce her. Behold, an angel of the Lord. Now, in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord sometimes is an appearance of God himself, a theophany or Christophany, and it's appearance of God. But sometimes the angel of the Lord is actually an angelic spiritual being, some, a created spiritual being coming to do a work to make an announcement. And context will tell you which of the two it is. But in this case, this is one of the created angels. And this angel of the Lord suddenly appears to him in a dream. And he's saying, Joseph, son of David. Now, Joseph, yeah, he would know that somewhere deep down in the distant family line, and you can see it, it's recorded in the genealogy in Matthew chapter 1, right ahead of this. He knows that, yeah, way back there, King David, that is an ancestor of mine. But he never was referred to as the son of David. No, everyone talked like that. He's just Joseph, the guy. Righteous guy, but just Joseph, the guy. When the angel calls him the son of David, all of a sudden that's calling to mind, you are in the lineage of the royal King David, the one that was made a promise. You'd have a, have a son that would reign forever. And he says, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. Do not be afraid. You see, fear is the enemy of faith. And what God is doing through this angel is he is calling Joseph to trust him. I want you to trust me. What I'm about to tell you, what I'm revealing, I want you to trust me, to take me at my word. I want you to go against popular opinion. I want you to trust me, no matter what the difficulty, no matter what the understand, misunderstanding, no matter what the splendor, no matter what happens to you, I want you to trust me. And so he says, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. And here again, he gives that description for the child who has been conceived in her, is of the Holy Spirit. That's exactly what, the, what Mary told him. The Spirit of God did this. And so we see that he's getting this message here. And he, the angel goes on to say, and she will bear a son, verse 21, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, this statement here in verse 21, you might want to underline it. Because, yeah, it was astonishing that Mary was pregnant, but this is even more astonishing. Like, what? Are you kidding me? She's going to bear a son, and you're going to call his name Jesus, for he will save his people 
from their sins. Jesus is the Greek form of Joshua, Yeshua in Hebrew. It means Yahweh saves. His name is going to identify his mission. Now, actually, Jesus was used during this time, and the Jewish people would name their boys Jesus, Yeshua, because they were looking for the Messiah. They were waiting for it. It was sort of like a symbolic hope that Yahweh would come and rescue them. But the angel says, you are going to name him Jesus. He's going to save his people from their sins. All this promise about a deliverer, it's all going to come to fruition in this very one individual. And you have a job. Your job is to name him. To name him would mean that Joseph was being called to adopt him into his family. Because when the father named the child, that meant that that child is a part of his family. This is what he is supposed to do. He is to be a husband to Mary and a father, adopted father, to this boy, this baby named Jesus. Jesus. And that's what he has. He has a role in this entire mission. And notice what this baby is going to do. This, this one, Jesus, he will save his people from their sins. Who's he going to save? Everyone? Is this universal salvation? Here comes the Savior of the world. He saves everybody? No. He saves only his people, his sheep. You have to actually really know him. You have to be in right relationship by virtue of true, genuine faith to be one of his people, one of his children. And what does he save them from? He saves them from sin. It means to miss the mark. It's our fleshly propensities. It's our nature to avoid God, to be in rebellion against God, to do life on our own, our thoughts, our attitudes, our words. I mean, we don't have to look too far like, am I a sinner? Like, oh, yeah, I got a lot of proof that I am one. It's our nature. We're in rebellion against God. We want to do life on our own. We will disregard him. We'll be indifferent to him. We won't accept his holiness. We won't revere him, nor will we even walk in his ways. We violate his truth, the commands that he's given. But I want you to know, Jesus came to save his people from their sins. You see, Jesus is going to be the one, as the Messiah, the anointed one, who will save his people from the penalty of sin. So what is the penalty of offending God, of disregarding him, of disobeying his word, of living in rebellion against him? Where the wages of sin is death. And that is why Jesus must die. As a perfect sacrifice, who fulfills all the law's demands, he will die in the place of sinners who will believe in him and receive his righteousness. Jesus not only, though, saves us from the penalty of sin, but he will also save us from the power of sin. Before you and I really, truly know God by faith in Jesus Christ, we were dominated by the flesh. It controls us. It was, no matter how we tried to clean up our life, there was the power of sin at work in our life. I want you to know that when you place your faith in Christ, he saves us from the power of sin. He actually places his spirit in our lives. There's a new way, God's way, life in Christ. And we can live differently, love differently, serve differently, worship. Why? Because he saved us from the very power of sin. And one day, he will save us eventually from the very presence of sin itself. 
when we're with him in heaven. And so this angel has made this proclamation. Verse 22 says, Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child, and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. I don't want you to miss this. Do you see who is actually giving these words? Here we see, once again, a description of the true nature of Scripture. All this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. The prophet just doesn't make things up, or I think this is what God would want me to say here or write. No, it's the Lord. Men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. And what is it that God gave? Why, here is a very specific prophecy that could only be uniquely fulfilled. It's from Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. It was written 700 years prior to the event, this event. It's written in the dark days of rebellion and national threat under King Ahaz. And there is this prophecy given in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. It's this one. There is going to be a virgin who shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call him, his name, Emmanuel, because that means God with us. This is a very specific prophecy. It's given so that the world will not miss this child, absolutely unique. It is the eternal son of God. And if you really want to experience relationship with God, you must know him, Emmanuel, God with us. And so this cryptic prophecy all of a sudden springs to life as the angel explains this to Joseph. You see, friends, this is the essence of Christmas. God with us. And do you know why God gives such attention to these birth announcements? Why we see the glorious nature and the characteristics of Messiah. And it's meant to evoke awe, worship, wonder, joy, inexplicable joy. Why? Because God is at work. He's rescuing humanity. He's a promise maker and a promise deliverer. And it fills you with great joy and worship. If you want to make the most of this Christmas season, take a look at the announcements and let them fill you with wonder and joy over Jesus, the promised Messiah. But there's another reason why God gives such attention to the birth announcements. And that is because it's through them he develops the faith of his people. Take a look at this. Get ready. What will Joseph do? Verse 24 And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife. After the angel's intervention, after the word from God, Joseph abandons his plan to divorce Mary. In fact, what does he do? He actually takes her as his wife. He did as the Lord commanded. This is a legal step. This means that Mary is going to have a husband. This also means that this child is going to have an adopted father. So for, for Joseph, like all of a sudden, he comes to the realization what God has spoken to him in this dream, this vision, through this angel. You know what? Now he has resolve. And he's going to take Mary as his wife. This is all of a sudden, remember the joy that he, they had when they're planning their future? Why, it's all back. In fact, there's even greater anticipation. Now, 
Mary is mine. God is at work. This child is going to have a father. But I want you to know there's also something else that's going on here. Although he's filled with joy, he also understands that her stigma is going to become his stigma. She is going to need a protector. When all this gets around, this small town scandal, it's going to go ballistic, man. They're going to be talking about this. Everyone is going to be shredding her reputation. And Joseph, if he doesn't divorce her, guess what? He's going to take the heat. And you have to be kind of like a married man to know this. But like there is something about the challenge, the challenge to your wife and your wife's reputation that you're like, I'm going to stand in front of her. You're going to have to come through me. I'm going to be a shepherd for my family and I'm going to be a shield for her. And that's what Joseph does. But I want you to know it's going to be very costly for Joseph. He's going to become a pariah among his own people because everybody's like, oh, well, you know what's going on here. You're responsible. You are, you're just as wayward and immoral as Mary. And although the child is not born in Nazareth, they do come back. And there always is going to be this asterisk. There's always going to be this, dit, 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 dit. all these people, you know, oh, yeah, Mary and Joseph. <laughs> we know all about it. But I want you to see Joseph for who he is. He's like the Old Testament people of God. That when asked by God to do something great and challenging, they do so by faith. Like, for instance, like, remember, like, Noah? And God says, listen, I want you to build an ark. He gives all these specifications. No one's even heard of an ark, seen an ark, and he's building this huge monstrosity of an ark. And everybody's like, what in the world are you doing? There's going to be a flood. You know what? There hadn't even been a rain, not to mention an ark before. But God used Noah and Noah's faith to save his family and all the animals. Aren't we glad about that? And you remember a guy like named Abraham? And remember God said, listen, you know what? I want you to go and sacrifice your son on Mount Moriah. You take him up there and sacrifice him. And he took his boy up there. And it wasn't like he was like a little toddler drawing him, you know, dragging him up the hill. No. He's likely a teenager by this time. And you remember? It's like, hey, where's the sacrifice, Dad? And Abraham said, God will provide the sacrifice. I don't know how this is all going to work out. This doesn't make any sense to me, but I do know that we're going up the top of this hill and somehow God's going to provide the sacrifice. And he did. You see, that's what Joseph is doing. He is standing in a long line of those who will take God at his word, no matter what the cost, no matter what the ridicule, and believe. And you see what the text says. It says in verse 24, he did what the Lord commanded. He took Mary's wife, and verse 25, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. You see, abstinence maintains both Mary and Joseph's uh, ritual purification. It ensures that the Messiah will be born of a virgin. I want you to know, this is a great man. And do you see that? He did it. Verse 25, and he called his name Jesus. Just like he was directed by God, so he does. He publicly adopts Jesus as his own. And that means now Jesus is in the royal line of King 
David, fulfilling all the prophecies. I want you to see there's a reason why God has such great attention to these birth announcements. This not only fills us with awe and understanding of who the Messiah is, it is meant to develop our faith as God's people. Just like Joseph and Mary. I mean, think of them. Think of their boldness, their character, their faithfulness. I mean, look at this too. He's look at Joseph. He puts the interests of others before his own. Did you see that? And he becomes a true shepherd for his family. No matter what the heat, what the ridicule, he's, he's standing as a leader of his family. You know, it's very interesting. I've been thinking a lot about this. God decides that Jesus is going to be born in this family. A family, raised in a family that is going to be maligned and slandered. Sometimes perhaps even viciously so. It's very interesting that Jesus grew up in a home like this. And so when you see Jesus later on in his public ministry, do you, did you ever notice how he seems to have such a heart for, for women who like, seem to be like walking scandals? He has such a heart to them, for them. In fact, when he makes himself known as the Messiah, it's to a woman who had been married multiple times. And in fact, she was so shunned, she couldn't even get water at the same time with the other women. That's because he grew up in a home like that. He knew Mary his mother. But he also, he knew Joseph as his adopted father. And he must have admired him as he continued to grow. What courage it took to stand in the gap. Jesus was shaped by these parents. And so I want you to know that God still uses people today who will, who will count the cost and pay it who are not so tied into their reputation or what others might think of them to fulfill what God has asked them to do. For uh, Joseph, you know, he was all about like being righteous and being the right guy and doing the right things. But, you know, this child, Jesus, would provide a whole new kind of righteousness, a righteousness that would be met by Jesus who fulfilled all the law's demands, a new kind of righteousness. It is what we celebrate at Christmas. Can I ask, what kind of person are you? Will you um, walk with God and, and follow him and do as God has laid upon your heart, even when you don't understand how it's all going to work out? Even if you are misunderstood or you're slandered or ridiculed or taken some heat, pretty sure I'm not the only one that has some family members think like, <laughs> what are you doing with your life? Wasting it? Follower of Jesus? You gotta be kidding me. That's cute. But that's for the weak. Will you follow God and do as he has asked? Trust him, no matter what the cost, what the consequence. Even when you don't have the whole picture. Why did God do this and work through Mary and Joseph like this way? Why don't why not just take Jesus, the Messiah, just put him on a doorstep and like get started right there? And I'll tell you why. It's for this reason. Faithful people are God's ordinary means to accomplish his extraordinary mission. And that is true today. Faithful people, you, me, right where we're at, we're not perfect, but we're just trusting God. We're asking God to do his work in us and through us, in our living, in our loving, in our giving, in our serving, in our worshiping, because that is how God works. Faithful people are God's ordinary means to accomplish his extraordinary mission.
And do you see what this announcement of Christ's birth does? It develops the devotion of his people. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you. You are the almighty God, and we worship you from the heart. We thank you that you have promised and delivered the Messiah, the eternal Son of God who entered into humanity. What an absolute joy and delight it is to worship you. If there is someone here today who has never truly trusted Jesus, would they pray with me now and say, God, I put my faith and trust in him. I turn from my sin. I trust Jesus. And for those of us who believe, if there's any sin that the Spirit of God brings to your mind, would you confess it right now? Just turn from it, confess it. Would you ask God to infuse you with the joy of your salvation? The joy of knowing Jesus joy of knowing God with us, Emmanuel. And whatever God has called you to do, what are your next steps? Right where you, God has you, no matter what kind of mess you might think you're in, what does faithfulness look like? And ask God for you, for his help to do just that. Ask God to help you and me to be faithful. And for each of us and all of us together, to shine the light and the love of Jesus, especially this Christmas season. And so whatever your needs, would you bring them before the Lord who loves you? And so, Lord, we worship you. And as we get ready to partake in communion, we do so in awe and wonder and worship of you. You are everything to us. You've done all things for us. We remember you as we look for your son's return. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.